様の拳など顔どにも聞かんわいお前はもう死んでいる何おわたくびでギレブはい。For the podcast. Right. We've been guests on the Studio Ghibli Minute. So we've watched Spirited Away,、mm-hmm. Castle in the Clouds, and Castle in the Sky. I think it's Castle in the Sky. Yeah. And, and then,、um, Princess something or other. Oh,、uh, crap. And the Valley of the Wind. Valley of the Wind. Nausicaa. Yes. Yes. That's the one. And we enjoyed them all very much. Right. Because they were very specifically. Studio Ghibli Productions, and they have a very specific style. I think the question that is riding heaviest on our minds right now is why are we watching this? And the answer is very succinctly that this movie was requested by a $5 a month patron. So, Sarah, thank you first and foremost for donating at the $5 level. Another reason we're watching this is because. Buronsen and Tatsuohara were very inspired when they created the visual aesthetic of this world by the Mad Max series. It's very post apocalyptic, it's lone hero against the world sort of thing, so there's a lot of parallels that exist there. The short summary on IMDb says quote, A practitioner of the deadly martial art, Hokuto Shinken, allies with two children and an expert in Nanto. Suicho Ken to fight against the rivals who kidnapped his lover and threaten the prosperity of mankind. Given the inspiration of Mad Max, I'm looking forward to being able to identify those elements. So, this movie has a 7.3 out of 10 after 5,853 reviews. That's so, very good. You could say that there are a lot of people that have very fond opinions. Of this movie. We watched the trailer and it is oh, oh boy. so different from what we usually watch. Yes, it is. I almost don't know what to say about this movie. I was speechless and flabbergasted at the trailer. I just don't know. The one major detail about this movie that I'm aware of is that the main character. Whose name is Kenshiro. Now, we are watching the English dub. We're not big fans of subtitles. So, we are going to be hearing the voice of John Vickery as Kenshiro, Melody Spevik as Yuria, which I think is also just Julia in the English dub, and then Wally Burr as Rao. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. We haven't watched the movie yet, so I don't know. But、um, given what I know about. English dubs with anime, the voices are probably going to be just very poorly acted, which, hey, that just comes with the territory. If we were subtitle people, we would hear the original Japanese voice actors and it would probably be a lot better of an experience, but 
I don't want to read for 90 minutes. Right. I would argue, no, it wouldn't be a better experience. Neither of us like subtitles. If I wanted to read for 90 minutes, I would get the book, which (laughs) is what Fist of the North Star started out as, a comic book. Okay. And then they adapted it to an anime because, you know, it's the natural progression, Mm -hmm. I guess. But I'm hopeful that this will be fun, that we'll be able to find some good in it. And if nothing else, it's going to be a unique viewing experience, would you say? Yes. And I'm always open to expanding my media worldview. Yeah. Even if I'm not particularly enjoying it, some things you watch because you should, like Schindler's List. Right. And The Fugitive. I mean, I'm not willing to sit here right now, sight unseen, and say that Fist of the North Star and Schindler's List are in the same echelon. No, my comparison was this is a popular piece of media from a different culture and... It's like being well-read. If we want to be well-watched, you watch stuff like this. Okay, I can definitely get behind that. I know there's one part of this movie that has permeated other areas of, like, meme culture. I think I mentioned that the main character punches people and then their heads explode. There's going to be one scene in particular where he does this crazy, complicated jabbing maneuver, and then he utters the phrase, you're already dead. And the original Japanese of that is thrown into all sorts of different little meme things where he says that phrase and then the bad guy's like what and then like he takes a couple of steps and his heads explode so sounds like that scene from kill bell volume two yes like the was it like the five punch death trigger whatever technique yeah like you get like three steps and then your heart stops yeah i wouldn't be surprised if tarantino borrowed that wholesale Mm -hmm. for kill bill but I'm not Tarantino, so I don't know exactly. I'm sure people have written up stuff about it. But anyway, I'm going to play the trailer. You all can have fun listening to that. And when we come back, we will let you know what we think of 1986's Fist of the North Star. becomes more powerful than justice and fear becomes more powerful than hope when all the rules have changed a new hero will emerge Listeners, you may be thinking to yourself, wow, it's been three minutes and Rick has gone from having a perfectly clear voice to suddenly sounding 
like he's been coughing for the last 12 hours. Surely it hasn't been that long. Well, let's ignore the fact that it may or may not have been weeks since we recorded the intro, but I have since become sick, not because of this movie, but I'm also not going to say it wasn't because of this movie. (laughs) Julia, what's your initial reaction to Fist of the North Star? I think you quite possibly could be getting sick because of this movie. (laughs) I think maybe you got punched in the head so hard that you got a cold. Honestly, I know I just took two acetaminophen, but it kind of feels like I got punched hard (laughs) enough to give me a headache. So, I mean, I'm not counting it out by any stretch of the imagination. We could also say that the role of Rick has been redubbed over by a different voice actor because we did watch the English dub. Yes, we did. Of this movie because we didn't want to read. We mentioned that back in the intro, but I wanted to reiterate it that we watched the dub, not the sub. Korean director Bong Joon-ho would be very disappointed with us, but that's a little bit of Oscar talk that we don't necessarily have to get into. Anyway, (laughs) my initial reaction from the movie is that something this interesting shouldn't be so boring. Oh my gosh, that's the perfect statement because it was boring, but- there was so much there. It was there the was so lo- much plot. It was the longest hour and forty five minutes I think I've ever experienced. You can tell that this movie was taken from a manga. It was taken from however many separate issues of a publicized work, and they were just picking and choosing the important big plot movements and boiling them down into a feature length and. While I'm sure the goal of getting Kenshiro's story out into the world in a feature-length format was their goal, I don't think they did it very well because there's just so much story that happens in between the disparate parts. And because of all the jumping around, it was really hard for me to really connect with any of the characters. And so when they had these big emotional movements, it meant nothing to me. And I was bored by it. That would explain the constant rotation of villains. The villain in the first scene is different than the villain in the second scene, which is different than the villain in the third scene. And then the villain from the first scene, you can have some sympathy for him, but then he turns out to be a dick anyways. There was just a lot of movement on who was the good guy and who was the bad guy. And you can't necessarily say that one of the vignettes needs to go because they are all important in the overall grand scheme of things. Like, you can't take out the first scene because it establishes that Shin betrayed Ken and stole away Julia, like, by force. And then it also, one thing I didn't realize in the while watching the first scene, but something that I realized later on in the movie, that first scene is where they introduce Rao and Jaggy. Yes. Which, honestly, I thought his name was Jackie for the longest time, and then I'm reading here, no, it's Jaggy. <laughs> I did like... There was some cleverness and some like later on villain monologue plot reveal where that whole scene with Ken and Julia and Shin was all planted. That it was all a plan of Jaggies to get rid of Ken and manipulate all of that stuff. Yeah, there's some Game of Thrones little finger level manipulation that is going on here. And... It's the sort of thing that if it was done in an HBO style 10 episode arc, you could do a lot better. And I think that's the cardinal sin of this movie is that they tried to do too much in too little a time and it didn't give the source material enough 
credit, I guess is a good way to say it. Agreed. I think it would have been well served by slowing down a little bit, developing the characters. Julia, I could tell that she was an important character and she drove a lot of Ken's motivations, except we barely got to know her. She was barely in the movie. And then by the end, which I'm sure we'll dive deeper into, she turns out to be like the super duper important character, but I'm not 100% sure why and what happened to her. It felt like there was this supernatural element between Julia and Lynn that these two were somehow able to grow things. And it felt like they were special because of that. And also both of them with their relationship with Ken also felt very connected mm-hmm. and special. Not pursued at all. I'm actually really curious, almost curious enough to go read the books to find out if there really is more to that plotline. Now, there is a six-season Fist of the North Star anime TV show. Oh. It exists out there. And I'm willing to bet because the show ran from 1984 to 1988. I'm willing to bet that this 1986 film is a glorified clip show from the television show. That would make so much sense. Do you think they actually took bits of the storyline, like actually took the animation from it? Oh, yeah. Like just condensed it down into a two-hour movie? Did you notice that there were some like especially violent scenes that seemed to have a graininess to them as if they weren't the same visual quality as the other scenes around them? Yes. Those were probably taken from, I don't know if I want to say like a cut scene from an anime episode, but if it was too violent for broadcast... They probably cut it out of the show. It wasn't as good a quality as the rest of the movie, but they threw it in there because they, hey, you know, we're a movie now. We can just throw it in there. But yeah, I'm pretty sure if you want the full story, like we're talking about, you're going to have to go sit through six seasons skipping the movie. While we're on the topic of the animation, the very first thing that struck me about the movie was the opening animation of the mountain scenes. Oh my gosh, the they were backgrounds. crazy good. There was a couple where I really questioned whether they were drawings or pictures because they were so good. Yeah, the landscapes in this movie are gorgeous. So, but that being said, the character animations, <laughs> not so much. We're not. So if we're supposing that maybe they took animations from the TV show, that would open up the possibility of them borrowing animations or backgrounds from other places. Do you think maybe that those mountain backgrounds were from something else? Because they were way higher quality than anything else in the movie. They could have been taken from somewhere else. My suspicion is that they were such higher quality because they didn't have to move. You could set an artist for however long to put these things together and make them as photorealistic as possible. And they can take as long as they want to do it. Whereas the animators that have to animate things that are moving, they don't have that luxury. So whether they took the scenery from somewhere else or they just had one scenery artist that said, okay, that's the only thing you're working on, they definitely put out the highest quality stuff. They absolutely did. Even after the opener, which, oh my God, that opener, it throws you for a loop. The first several minutes, I wouldn't say minutes, uh, the first few minutes of the movie are essentially the opening to Sound of Music. Because you're going through these <laughs> picturesque hills and mountains and it looks very quaint and Austrian and all that other stuff. Uh-huh. 
then they do a massive zoom out to the entire world and it's just these little blips of light that represent nuclear explosions because they have a voiceover at the beginning that says hey you know everything kind of exists in a yin and yang and when stuff goes really well it tends to swing all the way back to the very bad and balance is kept that way and so we get to see the really good and then we get to also see the devastation of nuclear fallout happening in the mystical year of 1990 whatever (laughs) that's a really good point maybe they put so much effort into those beautiful backgrounds because it was the opposite to the absolutely horrific animations that they did of nuclear war Mm -hmm. they were wow yeah they were graphic they were Um, very graphic like people melting and falling apart like there's a lot of really violent imagery in this movie You cannot say otherwise. Yeah. I knew that that's what we were watching. I knew that this character punched people so hard it made their brains explode. So I was a little worried about it bothering me or just being too much for my delicate sensibilities. Really didn't at all. Really did not at all. The silliness of it sometimes made me laugh a bit because (laughs) the punch and the brain explosion and the person actually dying We're so spaced out. Yeah. We're so spaced out. If it were all tighter, if it was punch, explode, die, I would have like taken it a little bit more seriously, but he would punch and then the guy would fall to the ground and then, oh my gosh, my head hurts. And then it explodes. And then he screams for like, I don't know, maybe 10 more seconds before slowly dying. It made it hard for me to take that seriously. Yeah. Because in the past- Whenever you've seen something particularly violent, you usually say the words nope, and then you turn away or something like that. Like, we went out and watched Birds of Prey in the theater, and there's one scene where Margot Robbie jumps on this guy's legs, and they bend backwards. And in the theater, you were like, nope. (laughs) Yep. But the stuff that they were showing here was so much more. And describing it as over the top and silly, I think, is hitting it right on the head. It's just so nonsensical you don't get too far into the uncanny valley of oh my gosh this is too real i was i was sitting here thinking oh but i remember sitting watching a movie with you like recently like now where i did that i turned my head and went nope and then i realized it was last night when we were watching once upon a time in hollywood yeah i noped a couple times in that one (laughs) there are some fist of the north star levels of violence at the end of that movie seems like a fitting prelude to watching this movie today but one thing that really stood out to me aside from you know the overtop violence is the over the top level of i i don't want to say copy pasting from mad max but this movie is so aggressively mad max and the fist of the north star tv show came out in 1984 the fist of the north star manga started in 1983 So the creator was able to see the first Mad Max, was able to see Road Warrior, started Fist of the North Star, Beyond Thunderdome came out a few years later in 1985, and then in 1986 they used, I'm assuming, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep harping on this because I'm pretty sure it's real, use all that cartoon footage to make a movie a year after Thunderdome. It is very clear that they took heavy, heavy inspiration from Mad Max And you can hardly blame them. In this period in the 80s, ushered in by movies like Mad Max, 
it was this craze of this post-apocalyptic aesthetic. Yeah. When we first saw Ken, did he strike you as someone who kind of looks like Mel Gibson in 1981? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And even, oh, there were so many, there are too many little nods and bits and pieces to even mention. Mm-hmm. We'd have to comb through it minute by minute to find them all. Which we do Which not we have the time or desire to do. do. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't say that Ken is the exact same as Max because Ken has two shoulder pads instead yes. of just one. Yes, he does. On his Brando jacket. Yes. And when he goes through a wilderness period and then returns, his hair isn't long, but he has a full beard. Right. So that's a difference. Yeah. Max Rokotansky never grew a beard. He never grew a beard. Well, now that okay. I say that out loud, it's like, wait, really? You he could, didn't? You could argue that Tom Hardy as Max grew a beard. Oh, that's true. But that was such a small slice of Fury Road. Mel Gibson as Max never grew a beard. But- He always kept his face shorn. Yes. And something that Mad Max does a couple times throughout the four movies that is mirrored is this period of wilderness time, mm-hmm. the coming back to civilization- and the cleaning up, the hair cutting, the face trimming, that scene. That is something that has happened. We Well, we saw it in Thunderdome. And then it was done to him in Fury Road. In Fury Road. But I think Thunderdome is where you see Max. Oh, I finally have some time to rest. Oh, no. It was done to him. Yeah. So He was unconscious. All right. Well, that's another. Okay. Wow. This is me being addled, I guess. Um, so that's another way that Ken is different from Max is that Ken cleans himself up, whereas Max goes to a salon. <laughs> but no, the, the scene where Lynn and the kid, Bat. The kid's name is Bat. The kid's okay. name is Bat. Okay. When they're introduced and they're being chased by the motorcycle guys, it's yeah. so Mad Max. It, you could swear that it's like something straight out of the first or second movies. Oh, yeah. The buggy, the motorcycle gang. The Mohawks, mm-hmm. it's all straight from. Something that, of all the the nods that we can't mention, a nod that I do want to mention is, especially from Road Warrior, there was this death and resurrection theme. Mm-hmm. And we got that heavily throughout uh, Fist and the North Star. Yeah. Uh, I think actually more blatant than Mad Max. Yeah, because- in that first scene, he's literally killed, thrown into a chasm. And then in the second scene, when they introduce Bat and Lynn, he's seemingly resurrected and comes out of the desert as a stone golem. And then he's much more powerful after he returns. Yeah. So there's definitely some religious imagery there. Never mind at the very end when Julia is propped up on the cross mm-hmm. in that bizarre, super duper tall cross. Yeah. It's very odd. She should have been in a lot of pain because yeah. historically, that's how they crucified people. They didn't yeah. nail them to the cross; they tied them to the cross. Yeah, because you asphyxiate. Yes, you can't hold yourself up, and you just collapse, and your lungs aren't able to fill. Yeah. So yeah. Oh, are we ready to just talk about whatever in the movie? I just made a connection for the end with how the movie ends. Oh yeah, if you want to jump around, let's jump around. Okay. Do you think that Julia died on that cross? No. Be- okay, set follow-up question. Do you think Julia died at the end of the movie? Because um, I do. I I'm, very do. I don't think so because the last we saw of Julia, she grabbed the kids and then all three of them were kind of flung somewhere by all of the tumult that's mm-hmm. happening around Ken and Rao. Okay, um, 
That's true. Okay. And the kids were okay. Yeah. So it would then follow if the kids survived that Julia would also have survived. Okay. So if Julia survived, which I agree, because we did see her alive and well off the cross, so the cross didn't kill her, which I kind of think it should have. That would have been kind of cool. Yeah, but when the cross broke, she landed on a bunch of the goons. If they broke her fall, she was fine because of the goons. Because of the goons. Okay, I think it would have been cooler if she had died on the cross. So she and the kids, we see them okay. The kids, then at least Lynn goes on to bizarrely save Ken by talking down Rao. And getting him to just walk away, which was very weird. It really was. Rao specifically says to Lynn, Ken will be okay, but he needs you to take care of him. And they don't. (laughs) And then they just walk away. And as they're walking away, Lynn says, gosh, I sure hope Julia and Ken find each other. And I believe they will. Well, you were just with Julia and you just abandoned Ken. Like, why didn't you bring them together? Say, hey, Julia, we're over here. Everyone's alive, but we're not doing so hot. (laughs) But we never see Julia and Ken together. Ken doesn't go looking for her. He just puts on his cloak, magically all better, I guess, and then wanders off into the desert. I kind of like the idea of Ken and Julia being driven by this need to find each other. It kind of reminds me of, on Netflix, the Witcher series, where Mm. fate is dragging Geralt and Ciri together. And then you got Yennefer in the mix. She's bound to Geralt because of the genies thing. Yeah. But there's this whole thing, like their whole existence is surrounded by this draw together where one is always pursuing the other. And that is what gives them the drive to continue existing. Huh. That is a really good point. I really like that element of The Witcher. I find it fascinating how, like, yeah, fate is pulling them together Sometimes it works out well and they end up being really close, but something happens and they're driven away again. I like that ebb and flow. Mm -hmm. It brings a lot of intensity to the storyline. But in Fist of the North Star, they didn't use it that way. Yeah. I wish they had like gone full bore into this supernatural idea of Julia and Lynn and how Ken is like bonded. Like Ken is the Witcher. Julia is Yennefer, and Lynn is Siri. They are all bonded together, but the story doesn't do anything with that. The level of interconnectedness between the characters in this movie elevates it above what it eventually becomes as a whole. Those little bits, the sum of those bits, is more than what we get in the final cut. And I think that's just because the TV show had more time to explore these things. Yeah, I'm very much tempted to go watch the TV show. Okay, so you've got the four main dudes of this movie. Shin, Ken, Rao, and Jaggy. Because Ken, Jaggy, and Rao are all brothers, and then Shin is the one that directly opposes Ken initially, and then he kind of exists as a bad guy on the end. You could say that Ray is in there as well, to make it five, but Ray is such like a sidekick. Yeah, he really is. I mean, not a good one, but yeah. Yeah. But I really like how even though the different chapters of this movie are so separated by time, they do puzzle piece together really well. Even the scene after Ken is killed and Shin takes Julia, we follow Rao as Rao goes home and he talks to the guy that I'm pretty sure is the father of, you know, 
Ken Rao and Jaggy. That's their dad. He's the one who picks the fist of the North Star. I think that's Rukin. Yeah. That scene was important because I'm pretty sure that scene is why Rao spares Ken at the end of the movie. Because Ryukin keeps talking about perspective and about how power without perspective is useless. And I think when Lin goes to Rao at the end of the movie, he gets that perspective. And that's why he lets Ken live. I agree, which is very Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. Okay, I can absolutely get on board with that because that ending when Lin was talking Rao down, I found that to be kind of jarring. Mm -hmm. It didn't make a lot of sense to me that she was able to do that. I heard the voiceover. Do you think he was remembering back to when he had that conversation with his father? Or do you think his father like appeared to him? I think and it was said, more, hey, remember what I said? I think it was more a memory than like some sort of magic where the dad is talking through Lynn. Mm-hmm. I think it's more a memory than anything else. Okay. A quick little thing before we continue about the story and whatnot. I was just looking at the IMDb page to make sure I got my names right. And Ken and Julia, those are Americanized. Their names are Kenshiro and Yuria. So that's why we're calling him Ken and Julia, because we watched the dub version. Right, exactly. It's probably also why I thought Jaggy was Jackie, because of how the English actors were Where's that G, like that hard G sound, yeah. was? they were pronouncing it very hard, almost sounded like a CK. It took me a while in the later chapters to put the pieces together that when we went to the town where Ray was introduced and they were talking about the fake fist of the North star, which was Jaggy in the iron mask, Mm -hmm. which felt very much. You said it felt very important. Joe, I definitely got a big humongous vibe from him. Yes. Speaking from behind an iron mask and all that. But it took me a while to realize that the fist of the North star wearing the iron mask was Jaggy. They had to kind of spell it out for me to get it. And then when Rao and his army showed up, Towards the end, it took me a while before I realized, oh, this is Rao. Because the last we had seen of him, he was standing on this cliff with a bunch of stuff going on behind him, which I guess was the cosmos acknowledging his power or something weird like that. I guess so, which I thought was weird. So the title of The Fist of the North Star, that feels very cosmic and supernatural. You can't steal something like that. You can't demand it. So why would the cosmos agree to it? Because they did seem to. They really didn't go into the idea of what the Fist of the North Star is. Yeah. You get the sense that it's like you're able to use key points or no, not key points. That's a D&D thing. You're able (laughs) to use like pressure points to unlock chakras or chi or something like that in people. Because a lot of the times after all the action was over in a chapter, Ken would use his Fist of the North Star power to try and do stuff for people. He did something to Lynn, and then she could talk. He did something to Ray's sister, and then she, I guess... Regained her memory. Got a little bit better, yeah. Like, it took seeing the flower for her to actually see again, but that's a whole other thing. There's something about that title of the North Star, because Ken is North Star, Shin is South Star. I'm assuming that the East Star got a house dropped on them, and then the West Star got, like, splashed with water and melted or something like that. (laughs) Because we don't hear about those other guys. We don't. I actually figured they didn't exist because North Star and South Star is very yin and yang. Yeah. The way the opener was talking about balance. So it didn't even occur to me that there might be, or where was, the East and West. All right. So the sister. 
Ray's sister. The IMDb says her name is A-I-R-I, and I can't remember from the movie how they pronounced it. Irie? Aerie? Uh, Aerie? That Airy? sounds about right. I don't yeah. know. Sorry, but close I, enough. I really don't remember. I'm going to call her Aerie. <laughs> she was such a mo- she's just such such a small character. <laughs> she bizarrely disappeared. Yeah. But as you were just talking about her regaining her memory and her sight and whatnot, she was supposed to get married. Mm-hmm. That's where she went. She went home. She went home to get married. Go see if her fiance was still alive. Yeah. <laughs> if you are supposed to do something so important and you get stopped and you have to leave, as soon as you're able to, what's the first thing you're going to do? Go home. You're going to go home. So we definitely noticed her absence. They could have said something like, okay, I'm going to take you home now and then I'll come back and help the kids out. Yeah. You know, so, I don't know, something, but she just disappeared. Oh it was gosh. weird. Seeing Ray sitting in the back of that little buggy. <laughs> That was with, great. With Bat and Lynn in the front seats, and he's just shoved into the back seat. I'm like, oh my God. Overall, as a character, I think he was, I don't know, a little useless, but there were some moments where he was pretty great. I mean, he fit into that archetype of, I want to kill the hero because I think they hurt me, but then I realized that one of the bad guys hurt me, so I need to fight them. And now that the other bad guy is defeated, I guess I'll hang around and help out. Yeah. He's like an RPG character, Mm -hmm. someone that you pick up along the way, you add to their party, but they don't contribute to the overall world ending narrative. Yeah. And I was sad when he died. Yeah. He uh, punched above his weight limit, so to speak. All right. So while we're still talking about the sister, I want to talk about the blindness thing. Okay. I totally get why she was blind. It was very Tommy-esque. So, you know, we've already delved all sorts into why Tommy was blind and I think- Pretty much the same thing applies. She just saw enough things that she didn't want to see. She's like, you know what? I can't see. Mm-hmm. Can't see. Not happening. Huh. My biggest like thing about it is that that's why Lynn couldn't talk. Because she was traumatized. It was a psychological thing that was turning physiological. Just like Ken tried to heal Aerie's ability to see. But he's mm-hmm. like, there's nothing wrong with her eyes. It's her. It's in her head. She doesn't want to see, so she's not seeing. But I can't fix that. All I can do is fix the organs. Same thing applies to Lynn. There was nothing wrong with her voice. Do you think it was really Ken that did anything with his powers, or do you think it was all about the seeds? Do you think it was all about Julia's seeds? Because Lynn didn't talk until she was in possession of Julia's seeds. Aerie, the sister, didn't see until the little flower bud was put in front of her face. Oh, like, that is very true. I mean, he did heal her mind for her memories. Yeah, that's true. He does have so some power. He does, yeah. Surprisingly, the Force can heal people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it can't heal psychological damage. Yeah, and a lot of the people in this world are traumatized. Yeah. Because they're living in a world of violence and scarcity. So it would make sense that there are just people out there like the sister who have just seen so much terrible things and done such terrible things that they go by the old adage, well, if I can't see you, you can't see me. Because that's what she explained to Ray, which I thought was really good, really affecting in a rare moment of feeling affected by this movie that if I don't open my eyes, then I can't see you, which means you can't see me because of all the terrible things that I've done. Like that kind of, ooh, that had a lot of weight behind it. It did. I agree. That was very powerful. And it, it did a really good job of telling us the story of her captivity, the things that she was forced to do and the things that (sighs) sometimes there's this mentality that you are to blame for things that you are forced to do, Mm -hmm. which you are not to blame for them. 
I think it happens. So maybe this is a stereotype, but it's all I know a lot with rape victims. Like, oh, I am dirty. I am unworthy of being loved because I was raped. Well, absolutely, that's not true. You had nothing to do with it. It was done to you. And that doesn't change the value of you at all. Mm -hmm. So I think it's the same thing with her, that she was forced to do things and she feels responsible for them when she's not. Once again, we hit it, hit on a topic where the individual parts of this movie are really good, <laughs> but when you cram them all together in an hour and 45 minutes, it's not. By the end of this movie, we both were sitting like I felt exhausted and oh dumbfounded. Gosh. I wanted so much to reach over and pause the movie to see how long we had left because there are so many times in this movie where the characters are sitting and they're contemplating something or they're oh, the moody walk. They're letting a situation wash over them. And I'm just sitting here thinking, get on with it because I don't have an emotional connection to these people built up over however long it's been. I've just been sitting here watching these little vignettes and I don't have that connection to these people that someone who has watched a series or read a manga would have. I'm being exposed to it for the first time in a movie, and it's just not affecting me enough to justify them staring wistfully through a window or contemplating a situation. Yeah, the movie did not earn what it asked of us. Oh, my gosh. And that ending fight where it's just Rao and Ken like floating through the air with these auras surrounding them. It felt very Dragon Ball Z, where we are two very powerful characters and we are going to fight, but we have to sit here and charge up our energy first before Oof. we can swing at each other. Yeah. Oh my gosh, the fight choreography in this movie, not good. No, and I'm not one for fight scenes. They don't really do anything for me. I know I've mentioned that in the Mad Max minute before, but there was a moment I said it out loud. Would you two just fight already? Yeah. Like, let's do something other than posture and glower at each other. And there's one scene in particular where Ken is walking towards an enemy and there are goons that are running at him and he's just batting them aside with very little effort. And sure, you want the audience to understand that your main character is incredibly powerful. But when your fight choreography is, okay, we're going to loop the walking animation on his leg and just have him wave his arms around. It's boring. Yeah. And I could see that working if we are building this expectation of power mm -hmm. for a payoff. Yeah. The payoff took too long. The payoff took so long that it was then separated from this building up of the expectation of incredible power. If he had walked in and <laughs> cut down his enemy's goons and then immediately, immediately started this epic battle, that would have felt better. But there was this break in the middle of him just posturing and being moody and walking and walking yeah. and walking. It killed the flow of that whole scene. And so many characters talk about, oh, Kenshiro, you're so strong now and all this other stuff. There is obviously something that happened off screen that made Kenshiro so powerful compared yeah. to how he was at the beginning. And we never saw it. That would have been cool. It's what happens when you cut all the good stuff. I say good stuff. It's what happens when you cut so much out of a series. So I think the takeaway for me is that we need to watch the series. I mean, mm, um, <laughs> that's an option. 
we've been dissing the movie so much, saying, oh, it's probably better in the series, it's probably better in the series, that I think we kind of owe it to watch the series. Because we see the potential for a good piece of media. It just wasn't the last two hours that we spent. Honestly, nothing about this movie makes me want to go see the series. Really? Really. Okay. I have no desire based on what I've watched. I think it's an interesting novelty that we sat down and watched it, but I don't think, oh man, I got to run out and watch the series now. I got to know more about these people because they just didn't hook me. Okay. And that's not what you want to hear when you're a creator, but it's what I'm going to say. I think, I think the main downfall of this movie is the fact that the people who made it got their start in the manga format in a series of still images on a page. Because yes, you can adopt a similar art style when you go from a page to a screen. But if you are used to choreographing your story through a series of still images and suddenly someone says, okay, animate this, you're going to animate it like you're drawing a comic book, which is why everything seemed so stiff. And oh my gosh, there were so many shots in this movie where it's just still images of faces. Maybe the mouths are moving. And then they've just got action lines or flashing lights behind their heads because they don't want to animate the background. Like it just, ah, I can't, I can't articulate it right now. <laughs> See, I was okay with all of that. That did not bother me at all. It actually reminded me a lot, again, of Mad Max. Mm -hmm. The Mad Max movies don't have a ton of dialogue. It is visually driven. And I felt the same with Fist of the North Star. That makes sense. All right. So we've really talked about vast swaths of this movie, different things that stood out to us. If you had to pick your favorite thing in this movie, what would it be? That is a very tough question to answer. <laughs> I think my favorite character might be Shin because... Really? Because that guy was a bastard. Yes, he was. He was. But I think all his bastardness wasn't necessarily his own fault. And I think that there were sympathetic elements to his character. Really? Okay. I am very much <laughs> looking forward to hearing your justification of this because Shin is on paper the exact kind of character that you specifically hate. That is true. The, you made a comment about the level of misogyny in this movie in the very first scene yeah. where Shin comes and steals Julia. And yeah, I agree. I agree. But he was... I find him sympathetic because he's manipulated into it. Not that he doesn't make his own choices. He made his own choices. Yeah. But he was lied to and manipulated into thinking that this is what Julia wants and that this action is okay and that it's just putting things in their proper place. And when we join him later, Julia is sitting on the throne. I got the vibe that he was actually trying to make her happy. And maybe you'll disagree with me. I I'm interested. I got the vibe that he had not raped her. Okay. As opposed to Jaggy, I did get the vibe, very explicit vibe, that he had raped Irie. Mm -hmm. So as much as the concept of a woman being forced to marry him, a woman being in captivity and being at his mercy is gross, he didn't take it as far as is stereotypical. Yeah. And his death was sympathetic. And maybe, no, I'm second guessing. <laughs> okay, not, okay. He's not like my favorite character as in, like, I liked him the best. I thought he was interesting. 
And I like seeing the background of how he was manipulated into it. Mm-hmm. I like that his death was sympathetic. Yeah. Not that I agree with his actions, but I found him interesting. That's okay. what I'm going with. All right. <laughs> what about you? Maybe yours is less complicated than mine. <laughs> My favorite thing about this movie is actually somewhat related to Shannon because when Julia finds out that Ken is still alive, because the main reason she's staying in Shin's fortress is because she thinks that Ken is dead. She fully believes that Shin killed Ken that day when he gave him the holes in his chest. Mm-hmm. And so when Julia hears that Ken is alive, she takes it on herself and does this solo. She escapes Shin's fortress completely on her own. She would have gotten off scot-free if she didn't run into Rao, but she got out of the throne room and out of the tower. Yes, we did get that weird shot where she like took off her dress in front of the mirror. Uh, yeah. That was a bit gratuitous. Didn't need to happen. But I loved how she is so capable as an individual that she could save herself. It did have the feel of she could have escaped whenever she wanted to. Yeah. She just had no motivation to because there wasn't anything out there for her that she particularly wanted. And it goes back to that whole destiny pulling people together. The idea that Julia's reason for being is to be with Ken. And as soon as she finds out he's alive, there she goes. So that was definitely my favorite part. All right. What was your least favorite thing in this movie? Hmm. Again, that's a hard question because it's hard for me to put in order the things that I liked and didn't like. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the things that I didn't like, um, we've already discussed. So I'll let those be. Something that I really, really didn't like was back in the very beginning when Rao returns to the dojo and Ryukin is there. Mm -hmm. And Rao like steals the Fist of the North Star. He does so by destroying those statues. Yeah. Like everything in the world is destroyed except for statues. It did seem like these statues were like the center of where that power comes from. Like you gain your the Fist of the North Star title and power from those statues. Like, well, now nobody else can. Yeah. It's like the it's like in Black Panther where all of the herb is destroyed. So now they can't ever have another Black Panther. It was dumb. It was very dumb. But Raub did become very powerful after that. So. Yes. Do you think he became so powerful because he destroyed them? Oh, I could see that being the case. Yeah. And he took all of that power very greedily mm-hmm. and, um, you know, just ruined it for everybody else. It is said that the dark side of the force is more powerful than the light side of the force. Because mm-hmm. it's not constrained mm-hmm. by wisdom, and perception and stuff like that. Yep. What was your least favorite part? Oh, my gosh. My least favorite part of this was the lazy animation. <laughs> My gosh, it was awful. Like that brood walk that you mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah, that just, was bad. Just the the arms moving back and forward and the trudging of the feet. and It was just so drawn out and so lazy because it's something you could literally copy paste to get done. And I'm like, yeah, I can understand cutting corners for a series. You've got to put out a lot of content for a series very quickly. You got to cut corners. But when you shell out the money for a movie... Put some effort into it. The anime TV show that I've yet to sit down and watch with you. I've watched it on my own, but I haven't watched it with you. Cowboy Bebop. Very good series. Very well animated in the actual, you know, serialized episodes. But when they get to the movie, they threw more money at it and the animation got better. Mm. I mean, here in Fist of the North Star, it just felt cheap. It felt lazy. And I understand 
artistic preferences and things like that. But just the way that when someone was damaged and blood was spraying everywhere, it was just lines. Like it wasn't splatter. It was just lines. And it just did not have a good feel to me. It just wasn't something that said, oh, yes, this is something that someone believed in, that they invested money in. This seems like just a let's put it out into the world and make some money off of it because not everybody is watching our TV show. I agree. I want quality. Give me quality. (laughs) But mm, it cheapened it for me. The whole experience, like setting aside the boringness of the pacing, just if I'm looking at something, I want to enjoy what I'm looking at. I'm not one of those people that's going to watch a piece of film that's ugly because I want to experience that ugliness. That's just not the kind of moviegoer I am. I'm not saying that if you're that kind of moviegoer, you're wrong. I'm just saying I'm not that person. Yeah, I can definitely get behind that. I think the poor animation didn't affect me as much as it affected you, but the poor animation of the blood did. Mm, Yeah. It lessened the effect of the fight scenes for me contributed to that silliness that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Now, now, do you feel like the English dub affected the quality of the movie? Do you think the voice actors didn't do a good job? Now, obviously, we haven't seen the subbed version, so we don't have the Japanese voice actors to compare to. But do you feel like the English dub contributed to the non-enjoyment of the movie? No. There was only one time... Where I was like, oh, yeah, this is totally dubbed is when Ken was doing a moody walk and there was music playing over and there were lyrics to the music. Oh, yeah. The emotional movie montage or the emotional music montage in the middle of the movie. Yes, absolutely. So I think we lost some effectiveness there, but the music was clearly uh, sad and introspective. So I don't think we lost a whole ton. We just don't know what the song was saying specifically. Yeah, it's not something that we lost out on. Yeah. But I mean, you know, we're not anime people. (laughs) Like we've seen a couple of Ghibli stuff, but I mean, we don't go out and watch a ton of anime. Yeah. So there might be subtleties that are lost on us. There probably are subtleties. Yeah, I'm sure there are. The difference in language. Yeah. 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 Not just spoken language, but also like cinematic language. Mm hmm. I think we've said this before that everybody comes into a movie with their own cinematic baggage. And if you're coming into a foreign film and you don't have the right set of luggage, metaphorically speaking, you're just not going to fit well in the overhead compartment to keep a plain metaphor going. (laughs) It's funny you say that because bringing it back to the movie we watched yesterday, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, same exact thing. If you're not coming to that movie with the right set of luggage, Mm -hmm. the movie loses a lot of its power. Yeah. If you're not familiar with big names of Hollywood in the 1960s, you're going to miss a lot of value in that movie. Yeah. So I like the phrasing that you put to it, the the right set of luggage. Yeah. Because that's exactly the sort of wording I was looking for last night when we were talking about that one. Yeah. Before we wrap up, there is one more thing that I want to talk about. I want to talk about the very, very, very end. It's almost like a credit slash post-credit sequence. The stuff that's running underneath the credits? Yes. Yeah. So Ken has defeated Rao. Uh, defeated is a strong word. Defeated is a strong happened, word. But I get what you're saying. <laughs> yes. So that fight is over. Julia's nowhere to be found. The kids are off on their own adventure, doing their own thing. And Ken returns to just wandering through the wasteland 
with his cloak. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden he comes upon this like pine forest oasis type deal. At first, I thought it was real. At first, I was like, wow, he just wandered further than anybody had ever wandered before. Yeah. Like, oh, it's the green place. Yeah, exactly. Then he started like hallucinating. Like seeing Julia and Seeing stuff. Julia, which is why I thought she was dead, mostly. That and her disappearance. Yeah. So he does that for a little while, and the credits are kind of playing over that. But then at the end, he just kind of wanders back out into the desert and comes upon another fallen city. Yeah. So now I think that that whole thing was a hallucination. Yeah, I think of, the forest was fake. Yes, I think the whole thing was a vision hallucination or like, of Or like kind. a dream or something like that. Yes, or, think, you know, a forced vision. Right. Because <laughs> yeah. let's, let's be honest about what's happening here. This is all a Jedi story. It's a forced vision, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess what are your final thoughts about this movie? Would you recommend it? My final thoughts are incredibly mixed. I ended the movie going, wow, I did not like that movie. But as we talked about little bits and pieces, I realized that there were lots of individual elements that I liked or could get behind or would like to see expanded upon. Yeah. So I think my answer is still, nah, don't worry about it. Don't go out of your way to seek this out. I think if... Anything that we've said sounds interesting to you, start with the series. Don't bother with the movie. Yeah. What about you? I'm definitely in the same boat. I did not watch this movie and end it wanting to know more about it. It didn't capture my imagination in the same way that the Mad Max movies did. If someone came to me and asked about Fist of the North Star, I could tell them to go and seek out the series, but I'd probably be a hipster and tell them to seek out the manga. (laughs) <laughs> like start start in the original format that the creator started with. Like go all the way back because I think even if you did watch the series, it would probably suffer from a lot of the things that I mentioned that I didn't like in this. The stiff animations, the really poorly done choreography. If your writer and his ideas exist in a chosen medium like manga, which is just comic books, but I want to be authentic to the spirit of the you know the format anyway i'd say if you want a primer on what watching anime is like i would not say oh run out and have your first anime experience be fist of the north star oh no no yeah, no if you want post-apocalyptic anime watch nausicaa in the valley of the wind yes much better if you want to get into fist of the north star go seek out the manga because then you can just buy the books. And buying books is always good. Buy print media. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> Go to your local library and say, where's the anime section? And if they say, we don't have an anime section, you can say, okay, let's do interlibrary loans. Let's do that. Your librarians will thank you for coming to the library and utilizing it. Because it's your tax money. You, could, you, you pay taxes on it. You got to use it. Don't let it languish. Anyway, this turn this took a really weird turn into me advocating for libraries. One last thing before we close. I know I already said that. Uh, but I did go to on to Amazon to see what the the manga is like price wise. Best I can tell there are 15 volumes. You can buy all 15 in one bunch for $200. Okay, it's a little steep for the whole thing. It is. You can get them used for about $75. And there is part of me that is tempted, although I probably wouldn't buy them in 
bulk. I probably wouldn't buy them all at the same time. I'd probably go volume by volume. Yeah. Take it easy. Don't go whole hog too quickly. Yeah. But I think overall, I wouldn't say that I'm disappointed that we spent an hour and 45 minutes watching this because it did provide us with this opportunity to sit down and evaluate it together. But yeah, I I will not go back and watch it a second time for leisure. Not like legend. Agreed. (laughs) Anyway, that wraps it up for this time around. We will be back next time with another movie somewhat related to the Mad Max series. And we hope that you will join us in that next adventure. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Fist of the North Star is presented by Shu Aisha and Toei Company. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Public storefront by clicking the store link, join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute. We'll see you next time.